Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore. My name is Alex Brubaker. I'm the manager here at the Scholar. Uh, thank you for joining us in Harrisburg this evening. We're really happy to have you here. Uh, before we begin, some quick housekeeping as always. I have two event announcements. Uh, coming up on November 23rd, we're welcoming best-selling authors Christopher McDougall and Alexandra Horowitz uh, to the Scholar. Chris is the author of this book called Running with Sherman, The Donkey with the Heart of a Hero. And um, we have actually just confirmed, no laughter, that the donkey is appearing at the bookstore. So Sherman the donkey is now a famous donkey. The Netflix has acquired the rights to the book to turn it into a movie. So the donkey is very famous. And he's going to be across the street in the grass lot. So we are bringing a donkey to the bookstore. Um, we also ha still have standing room only tickets available to see Salman Rushdie in December. So make sure to get your tickets before we sell out. Now tonight, we are honored to welcome author Henry Hemming to Harrisburg. Henry is the best-selling author of six books, including Agent M, Misadventure in the Middle East, and the New York Times bestseller, The Ingenious Mr. Pike. He has written for The Sunday Times, The Daily Telegraph, Daily Mail, The Times, The Economist, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, and has given interviews on Radio 4's Today program and NBC's Today Show. He was born and brought up in London before graduating from Newcastle University. After university, he spent 12 months making and selling paintings across the Middle East, followed by several years working for an art gallery and a theater production company. Today, he lives in London with his wife and two children. His latest book, which we are here for tonight, is called Agents of Influence, A British Campaign, A Canadian Spy, and the Secret Plot to Bring America into World War II. Publishers Weekly writes that this entertaining espionage history illuminates an important chapter in the history of foreign influence on American public opinion. And writer William Boyd says the book is a revelatory and wholly fascinating work of history, superbly researched and written with gripping fluency. This lost secret of World War II espionage finally has its expert chronicler. At this point, please join me in giving Henry Hemming a warm Harrisburg welcome. Thank you. Thank you all for, for being here this afternoon. I'm sorry I don't have a donkey. I, uh, <laughs> next time. So um, I was on YouTube recently watching various videos, and I saw um, I was watching Larry David. And it turns out that back in the 90s, I think, he began his set with the following line. The thing I always admired about Hitler is that he never took any nonsense from magicians. <laughs> which may have been true, but as we're going to find out in the next 45 minutes, it was a different story when it came to forgers of fake documents. And by the end of the talk, you'll know what I mean. So this is the book I've spent the last two years researching and writing. I'm going to walk around a bit. Okay. And um, it's called Agents of Influence. It's the story of how the British used fake news in an attempt to bring America into the Second World War. And at the heart of it is a man called Bill Stevenson, who was sent over to America in 1940. And he was working for Britain's foreign intelligence agency called MI6. Anyone here from MI6? <laughs> One day that's going to work, I'm convinced. Uh, you've almost certainly all heard of the, well, shall I say, alleged Russian influence campaign in this country in the months leading up to the 2016 American presidential election. It turns out that the British influence campaign some 75 years earlier was not only larger than what is supposed to have happened recently here, but arguably more effective. 
I, I guess the traditional thing for me to do in a talk like this is try and give you an overview of the entire book. But I'm going to try and do something slightly different. I'm going to concentrate on just one episode. And I think it's one of the most revealing and uh, symbolic episodes in the whole book. It's got some of the best characters. It's even got some of the best music. So we're going to have a couple of brief musical interludes. And it includes a character who, um, who saved my dad's life long ago. So I'll explain that soon. It's my hope that you come away from this with a slightly different take on exactly how America ended up at war with Germany in 1941, but also a different take on what everybody means when they talk about an influence campaign. And I, meanwhile, I'm not going to go away empty-handed. I'm going to come away with a sense of how good you are, as an audience, at spotting fake news. But uh, more on that soon. So for now, I want to start the kind of thrust of the main talk, which, is, um, which involves going back in time. So we're going to go back in time to the 27th of October, 1941. And we're in Washington, D.C. We're in the Mayflower Hotel. And we're in the ballroom of the Mayflower Hotel, which actually looks quite similar to this today. It's, um, it's a gorgeous-looking building, gorgeous-looking room. And on this particular night, it's looking even more wonderful than usual. There are flowers everywhere and flags. And it is stuffed full of people. So the great and the good of the capital have all gathered in this ballroom. There are generals, admirals, senators, congressmen, journalists, lobbyists, and their wives. The smell in there is quite something. It stinks of booze and cigarette smoke. It's incredibly loud. And by about 10 past 7 that night, some of the people in that room are beginning to feel on edge. And they're on edge because the person who's meant to turn up to speak to them is not yet there. But there's one person in that room who's more on edge than anyone else. And his nickname to his friends and also to his, his enemies is Wild Bill. Wild Bill is more on edge than anyone else in that room because he has a secret. Now, a lot of the people in that room may well have secrets of some sort. Half of them are probably having affairs. We don't know. Wild Bill's secret is different. And it's different because it could change the course of the Second World War. And it's to do with something that's going to take place in that room in the next 45 minutes. Now, if you were one of those people, and let's say the noise becomes a bit too much, so you decide to step outside, you'd notice, first of all, that it's a pretty cold night in the capital, also that it's raining. But had you stepped out at about 20 past seven that night, you would have also heard off in the distance the very faint sound of police sirens. Because at that moment, the small fleet of cars is heading towards the Mayflower Hotel, and one of the cars is this one. And inside that car is the 32nd president of the United States, Franklin D. Roosevelt, who is on his way to address the Mayflower Hotel gathering. Now, I just want to freeze that scene. So Roosevelt is on his way. You've got a, a crowd of people, including Wild Bill, who has a secret. And I want to give you a tiny bit of context, just to give you a sense of what's going on elsewhere in the world. So Britain, among other countries, is at war with Germany. And so too is the Soviet Union. 
So Russia came into the war four months before this particular speech. And the epicenter of the Second World War at that moment in time is the Eastern Front. Already more than two million Russians have been killed as a result of the German offensive. Most commentators writing in American papers or British papers at that time all agree that Russia probably won't last beyond the end of the year. They also agree that as soon as Russia is defeated, Hitler will turn his attention to Britain and then after that to America. So it's about two in the morning on the Eastern Front. The slaughter temporarily has abated. Meanwhile, in America, the United States is at peace. She's at peace with the world, but she's not at peace with herself. So at that moment, there is what I'm sure all of you know is referred to as the, the great debate. The great debate was raging within America. The great debate makes it sound quite civilized and genteel, but it's angrier than that suggests. It's, it's more of a civil war of ideas. And it's about the very simple question of should the country come into the war now or later or at all. And on one side, you have the interventionists. One of their groups is called Fight for Freedom. Roosevelt by now is a prominent interventionist. Many interventionists have family ties to Britain or they're just won over by the political argument, which is the sooner you take on Hitler, the better. Lining up against them, you've got the isolationists. And at the heart of the isolationist movement, again, as I'm sure you know, is the group America First, a phrase which has particular relevance today. They're led by Charles Lindbergh. That's one of the, the figureheads of this group. And they've got a variety of, of reasons why they feel America should not come into the war. One of them is, is the example of the Founding Fathers and, uh, and their insistence, their recommendation that all future American governments avoid foreign entangling alliances. But they also make the very valid point that Hitler doesn't really have a plan to invade and conquer America. And all historians since would agree with them. They were absolutely right about this. But there is, if you like, an Achilles heel to the isolationist way of seeing this question. And it's this. If there's evidence of a German plot or a German incursion somewhere within the Americas, so it doesn't have to be the United States itself, it could be Central America or South America, if that happens, then all bets are off and America must come into the war straight away. That's how most isolationists see the question. So let's go back. Let's go back to Washington, D.C. Roosevelt by now has arrived at the Mayflower Hotel and uh, rather than stepping gingerly out of the car, he's, he's carried out because of the polio he's suffered from for most of his adult life. He's, um, he's looking fantastic. He's in black tie. So is the security service detail. And uh, they carry him into the ballroom. The moment he enters the room, the band strikes up, all hail the chief. Do, 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 do. That's not your musical interlude, by the way. <laughs> it gets better. And Roosevelt is maneuvered to behind a podium, but he's not up to speak yet. Instead, there's someone else who gets up to speak first. And it's this man who is the person I referred to earlier as Wild Bill. So who is Wild Bill? Well, I mean, just to look at, you can see he's a, he's a bear of a man. He's, um, 
in character, he's very, he's charismatic, he's a gung-ho kind of guy. He's Colonel Wild Bill, sorry, Colonel William J. Donovan, who grew up in a tough neighborhood in upstate New York, went on to become one of the most decorated soldiers in American military history. I mean, he's someone who barely seems to feel fear when he's on a battlefield and being shot at. He's tremendously brave. In the years after the war, he becomes a, a millionaire. He um, develops his law practice. He is on paper the embodiment of the American dream. And yet over the last 18 months, he has not felt like that. He's had a difficult time in his life. It begins with the death of his eldest daughter in a car crash. And there follows months and months of frustration in his professional life. He keeps thinking he's going to get a high political job, but keeps being thwarted or frustrated at the last minute. Now, October 1941, he's closer than he's ever been before to where he finally wants to end up. And yet he knows that there's a chance with what's going to happen that night that he could mess the whole thing up. He knows that if the truth of what he's doing that night gets out, his political career will be finished, just like that. So he gets up to the podium, a bit like this, and in front of him is a bank of microphones, slightly bigger than this one, and uh, because this speech is being broadcast live across the United States, 85 million Americans are straining to hear what he's about to say. He introduces the president, and then... Roosevelt gets up, and you can see there's a man, Wild Bill, looking up at the president. And Roosevelt begins to speak. And his speech starts out fairly ordinarily. It's a precy of what's going on politically around the world, and in particular, concentrating on the situation in the Atlantic. But then he veers off, and this is what he says. Hitler has often protested that his plans for conquest do not extend across the Atlantic Ocean, but his submarines and raiders prove otherwise, so does the entire design of his new world order. For example, I have in my possession a secret map made in Germany by Hitler's government. It is a map of South America and a part of Central America as Hitler proposes to reorganize it. And he then goes on to describe this amazing sounding map, which shows South America as it would look after a successful German invasion. So the entire thing would have been conquered by the Germans. It even has routes showing how Lufthansa flights would move about this colonized South American continent. Roosevelt then goes on. This map makes clear the Nazi design not only against North America, sorry, South America, but against the United States itself. Your government has in its possession another document made in Germany by Hitler's government. It is a plan to abolish all existing religions, Protestant, Catholic, Mohammedan, Hindu, Buddhist, and Jewish alike. In the place of the Bible, the words of Mein Kampf will be imposed and enforced as holy writ. In place of the cross of Christ will be put two symbols, the swastika, and the naked sword. Let us well ponder that statement, which I've made tonight. And he then finishes the speech. There he is, mid-flow, 
And there he is just moments after. And you can see Wild Bill is one of the first people to go and congratulate. And that's his right hand going out to shake Roosevelt's. It's an extraordinary speech. The revelation of these two documents is unlike anything that Roosevelt has described prior to that moment since the outbreak of the war. And it's heard all over America, but very soon the transcript of this speech is relayed around the world. So in most major cities around the world, people are pouring over this text and trying to understand exactly what plans Germany might have to invade South America. And one of the millions of people around the world who reads this speech is this guy. And this is somebody called Eric Mashwitz, and he's in Toronto when he reads about this speech. So Eric is, um, is a lyricist. He's an Oscar-nominated screenwriter. He's British. He's living in Toronto. And um, he's a laid-back kind of guy. He's, um, he's one of those people who's basically at his happiest, telling a joke at his own expense. And uh, his most famous song, by that point in his life, is this one, which some of you may recognize. I'll just play for a bit. Any excuse to play that. It's uh, <laughs> These Foolish Things, sung there by Billie Holiday, written by Eric Mashwitz. So Eric, the laid-back lyricist, reads about this speech by Roosevelt, and he imagines, like pretty much everyone else who reads the speech, that it's going to bring America closer to war with Germany. It might even lead directly to war in itself. Nobody yet knows. But there's one thing that this guy knows about the speech that Roosevelt has just made, that almost nobody else in the world knows. Eric knows there's something wrong with it. He knows that the two documents that Roosevelt has just described are in fact fakes. They are forgeries. And the reason he knows that is that he is the one that made them. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so I'm just going to skim through Eric's war, just give you an idea of how he ends up in this peculiar situation. I mean, his war starts with him trying desperately to get a job somewhere in the British government, but being turned down because he's a lyricist. He doesn't have a clue how to be a civil servant or how to fight in the army. But then he writes to a guy he's met twice in his life, someone he knows very little about, who turns out to be the head of MI6. So by mistake, he's recruited for MI6. This admiral asks to see him. He gives him a job. And very soon, it becomes clear that Eric has a problem. He's now working as a spy, but he's no good at keeping secrets. And uh, to cover this up, because every time he'd bump into one of his friends from the worlds of music or theater, and they say, Eric, what are you doing? He'd struggle to conceal the truth. So he'd say, well, I'm, I'm writing songs for, um, for a new show. And having told this lie a few times, he thought the only way to make it more convincing was to write the songs and then put on the show. Which is why a new show 
happened in London in April 1940, including this particular song, which some of you may recognize. Sorry. I always feel bad cutting her off, but um, you can listen to it at length at home later. The, the most iconic song to come out of war-torn London was only either written or performed because the man behind it was a spy who's no good at keeping secrets. Anyway, that's how that song came about. Eric, a year after this, is told he's got a new job. And his new job is to go off to New York and he's to report there to the MI6 head of station a man called William Stevenson, who would tell him exactly what his new task entailed. So Eric goes to New York and meets this guy. And this is Bill Stevenson. And Bill Stevenson is, like Wild Bill Donovan, a fascinating character. I mean, just by me saying MI6, head of station, you're possibly thinking aristocratic British officer type of person, privately educated, family connection to MI6. Stevenson is in many ways the opposite of the typical MI6 officer. He comes from working class Icelandic stock. He grew up in the red light district of Winnipeg in Canada. He was orphaned by the age of five. He had a tough upbringing. But then he moves to London in the 1920s. He reinvents himself, never talks about his past again. And by the 1930s, he's a wealthy businessman. He's made a fortune in, in radio. And, um, and he meets a lot of people in London, including my two Canadian grandparents. And my Canadian granny had also spent some of her childhood in poverty in Winnipeg in Canada. So they got on, they had this connection, which is why she took her three-year-old son to go and see Stevenson one sunny day in 1938, and they had a lovely lunch. And after the lunch, Stevenson turned to my granny and said, where's your three-year-old son, my dad? And she had no idea. So he then, without a word, ran off to the far part of the garden where there was a pond covered with water lilies. And it turned out that my dad had fallen into this and was drowning. So Stevenson dived in, fully clothed, and fished him out. And then as uh, two weeks later, as in gratitude, or as a sort of punishment, he became dad's godfather. And this is a three-year-old dad, fresh from the pond, with Bill Stevenson in the back row. This is actually, funny enough, one of the only pictures in existence of Stevenson during the 1930s. But this is not about my family history. There's a reason I, I wanted to bring in this photograph. At this point in Stevenson's life, something else is going on, which, by the way, my Canadian grandparents and three-year-old dad have no idea about. Stevenson is trying to get a job in MI6. He's trying to come to the attention of these senior MI6 officers. He's struggling at this moment. But two years later, in 1940, he's suddenly taken on by MI6 and sent off to America 
with this extraordinary new job. Not only is he to run the new MI6 station, but he's told he needs to set up an influence campaign to try and shift American public opinion. And that's what he starts to do. So a year after he's arrived, summer of 1941, he has an enormous office based in the Rockefeller Center up on the 35th floor and 36th floor. And he has agents inside American pressure groups campaigning for war, agents inside American polling organizations, including Gallup. He's even cultivated an agent of influence, hence the title of the book, who has become the director of the new centralized intelligence agency, what goes on to become the CIA. But at the heart of his operation, I'd love to be able to kind of point to exactly which floor it is. One of those floors up there is an office dedicated to getting what was called at the time, and what we call today, fake news into the American news cycle. And this is what Eric Mashwitz is parachuted into. So at once, he's engaged with the business of getting fake or yeah, adopted stories into the media. He meets his new colleagues. Um, one of them it would soon be Roald Dahl, the famous children's author. Another of them was this guy, Ian Fleming, who uh, was working for this, this fake news operation briefly in the summer of 1941. And Fleming was, um, I think he was almost more intrigued by Stevenson than anything else. So as he did, he'd always be hoovering up details that would later be used in his books. And he wrote a lot about Stevenson, describing him as a future model for James Bond. And he even wrote down Stevenson's recipe for a gin martini, which goes like this. Booth's gin, high and dry, easy on the vermouth, shaken not stirred. I'm still trying to work out if Fleming used that anywhere. So Eric is thrown into this. And uh, very soon, he's, he's busily getting fake stories into the media. But how? How were they actually, oops, that's not meant to happen. How are they actually going about this? I'm going to give you just one example, which hopefully will bring to life this, how this operation worked. And it's worth bearing in mind the, the parallels to how you might do it today. And I don't want this to be a sort of masterclass in how to create fake news. But it's amazing some of the parallels between what we know companies doing this today, um, the techniques they will use. So this is the village of Berck-sur-Mer on the northern coast of France. And um, it's a lovely village. It's very rarely in the news. But on the 18th of June, 1941, it was very much in the news. As reported by the New York Post, the Baltimore Sun, the Herald Tribune, there had been a daring British raid the night before. And this raid involved a team of British parachutists landing just outside the village, overpowering an airfield with their Tommy guns and hand grenades, blowing up 30 planes, capturing 25 German pilots. The French villagers who witnessed this were so inspired that they volunteered on the spot to fight with the British. The British, plus the captured German pilots, plus the French volunteers, they managed to make it to the beach, which you can see there, and then they got onto a series of boats that were waiting for them and were halfway back to Britain before anyone raised the alarm. There were no British casualties. It was 
a daring, courageous raid, and it never took place. It was completely made up. It first came to life, really, two weeks before these reports first appeared. And these were, this was in the meeting of something called the SIB Committee. The SIB Committee met in London, and it was a team of British civil servants who would come up with ideas for rumors and, and fake stories that they wanted to spread around the world. Sib comes from sibilari, meaning to whisper. And they would then send the skeleton of these ideas off to various stations around the world. So about two weeks before this story appeared, a really kind of bare bones version of what I've just told you arrived in New York by telegram. And it said essentially, daring raids, Berkshire mayor, great success, the end. Then the likes of Ian Fleming, Eric Mashwitz and co got their teeth into it and they added all the color, all those memorable details and that's what you need for a story to stick. Memorable details like the Tommy guns, the hand grenades, the French villagers volunteering on the spot, all of that. And then I'll tell you about two things they did which helped to bring this story to life. So first, a full account of this imaginary raid was sent to something called the ONA. And this is the Overseas News Agency. And at the time, this was a respectable news agency based in New York. But unknown to most people, Bill Stevenson had entered into a secret arrangement with the head of the ONA, whereby in return for a fairly large sum of money paid each month, the ONA would broadcast fake British stories, but not within the United States. They'd broadcast them over to Europe. Meanwhile, a very similar thing happened with a radio station. So a similar version of the story was sent up to the WRUL radio station in Boston, the most powerful shortwave radio station in the United States. And again, the story was not broadcast within the US, it was broadcast over to Europe. Now once it had got over to Europe, from both the news agency and the radio, correspondents in Europe would pick the story up based in places like Stockholm or Zurich, They'd write it up in their own words, and then they'd send it back over the wire to America. And then the editors of papers like the Baltimore Sun, the Herald Tribune, the New York Post, would see this story coming from a variety of different sources, sources they knew to be credible. The story was slightly different each time, and they thought, this is real. So they ran it. And there you have the three key ingredients for fake news. The story needs to come from slightly different places, it needs to sound slightly different, and you need to believe where it's coming from. So this is what Eric was busily doing. That was roughly some of the techniques they were using. But some of you listening here might have thought to yourself just now, if I had read that story, I would have smelt a rat. And we're gonna put that to the test. So there's a really quick game I want to play, and I hope you'll play along with me. I'm going to show you a series of pairs of headlines. These are all headlines that appeared in the American press in late 1941. But in each pair, one of them is based on a fake story, and the other is genuine. And I want to see if you can work out which is which. So here you go. Here are two, two stories. One of these is based on rumor 287 cooked up by the SIB committee. The other is based on, on genuine reporting. Now, as you can see on the left, 
There's a story about an incredibly powerful new depth charge, the kind of thing to strike fear into the hearts of, uh, of any Germans who, who might have read it. And similarly, the story on the right about a new Russian defense system outside Moscow, which would hopefully deter the invading Germans, whereby Russian tanks could appear from hidden uh, holes in the ground, essentially, do their business and disappear again. They both sound faintly improbable. If you think the one on the left, the story about the depth charge, is actually the fake, can you clap, please? Okay. And if you think the one on the right is, in fact, the fake, can you, uh, can you clap? Very difficult to tell apart. I think, I think the first one got a slightly louder clap, just slightly. And you'd be absolutely right. Um, you're doing very well. You're doing better than a lot of the British audiences I've tried this out on. <laughs> so here's another one. On the left is a story about, I mean, essentially, it's a story about factory workers in occupied Europe being so anti-Nazi that not only are they producing fake or sort of dud bombs, they're also including messages saying essentially, we're on your side. And these are bombs being dropped on the British in Africa. And on the right, a story about Hitler having a plan to eliminate in its entirety the French race. If you think the one on the right, the story about Hitler having come up with a plan to eliminate all French people, is actually a fake story based on rumor number 347. Can you clap, please? Not a very emphatic clap. I think you're, you're gonna veer towards the other one. And the one on the left, if you think that's a fake, can you clap, please? I think the one on the right got a louder clap, definitely. Which means you're on course for a record score of three out of three. This is the last one, and I, I'm the only one other audience has got all three right. This would be historic in, uh, <laughs> in my world. So on the left, there's a story about Italian soldiers in North Africa being so worried about facing the British in the field that German psychologists have been sent out to offer counseling, or a story about British coal workers in war-torn Britain with rationing in full effect and the Battle of the Atlantic not going well, getting so much to eat that they're doubling their output in coal. So if you think the one on the left is based on a fake, can you clap, please? Okay, and the one on the right, if that's a fake? What do you think? I think it was slightly louder, slightly louder than the one on the left which is completely right. Well done, Harrisburg. That's, uh, you've gone down in my, in my record books. So, that hopefully will give you a taste for, for roughly what was going on, the kinds of stories they were getting out and, and how they were doing it. Eric Mashwitz soon reveals himself to be not only a talented songwriter, um, and a, a nice guy to be around, but also incredibly good at making forgeries. And soon word of this gets out in the office in the Rockefeller Center. Bill Stevenson gets to hear about it. He asks Eric to come and see him. 
And then he gives Eric a new job. He tells Eric to go to Toronto in Canada and to set up a new specialist forgery unit that would create incredibly good fakes and forgeries. He didn't want it to be based in the US because he was worried about the, the repercussions if this was ever discovered. And one of the first jobs that Eric was given was to produce this fake South American map. And this is what he made. Now, if you're into fakes and forgeries, this is a masterpiece. It's, um, this was soon on Roosevelt's desk in the Oval Office. It was pulled over by J. Edgar Hoover at the FBI and various officials at state at the same time. One of the highlights is this bit here and this bit here. And you can't read it here, but that's essentially Eric, the Oscar-nominated screenwriter, impersonating a German civil servant. And what he's done is he's, he's written in German, essentially, I've asked for this map to be like this, but yet again, you've messed it up. Please get it better next time. Which, if you're asked to produce a fake Nazi document, which you know is going to be poured over by the American intelligence community, is a daring thing to do. But at the same time, it's something that adds verisimilitude and makes it a convincing fake. But how on earth did this map end up on Roosevelt's desk? I mean, did Stevenson just give it to the President of the United States, or did something else go on? The answer involves this man here. And he's aged a bit since we saw him last, but that is, in fact, Wild Bill, Colonel William J. Donovan, who, um, who was essentially cultivated by Bill Stevenson very soon after Bill Stevenson arrives in America in the summer of 1940. Now, usually when I decide to write a book, I need to make sure there are characters that I'm interested by, I find captivating, that have something that I think a reader is going to want to stick with throughout the book, and also that shed light on the historical moment. But what I also need is relationships. You need these characters to actually interact and for there to be something between them. The relationship between Wild Bill Donovan and Bill Stevenson, who's there on the right, or the two Bills, as they are known to their friends, Big Bill and Little Bill. I'm pretty sure, by the way, Bill Stevenson is standing on something here, because he was actually quite a short guy, and Bill Donovan was not. This relationship is most of the reason why I wanted to write this book. It's a fascinating relationship. It's full of nuance and ambiguity. It's one which changes the Anglo-American relationship it's part of the reason why this relationship begins to be called the special relationship. And I won't get into it too much, but suffice to say, by October 1941, Bill Stevenson has helped to get Wild Bill into position as America's leading spy. He is the head of the COI, soon to be, well, the only American centralized intelligence agency. And for the last few months, Stevenson has been feeding British intelligence straight to Donovan, and Donovan has been feeding it on to the White House and to other customers within the, within the US government without revealing where it has come from, so passing it off as his own product. And one of the many things he passes on is this South American map. So that's how the map ends up on Roosevelt's desk. But that leaves us with two really big questions. The first is, did he know? Is that a picture 
the President of the United States in the act of knowingly deceiving his fellow countrymen and countrywomen? Or is that a picture of someone who's been deceived, who's been duped, who is the victim in all this? The other question that which this leaves us with is, um, what was the impact? What did this speech directly lead to? And I'm going to touch on that first. So the speech obviously causes shock and outrage across the US. But in some ways, there's even more shock and more outrage about 3,500 miles away in Germany. The German press lays into Roosevelt once they've established that these two documents are, in fact, fakes. A furious telegram is sent to the White House. But the person in Berlin who seems to be most angry about what has happened is this one. So eight days after Roosevelt's speech in the Mayflower Hotel, Hitler gives his first public speech since then. And he can talk of almost nothing but Roosevelt's speech and the South American map. Hitler is angry, but he's also forced, as a result of this speech, to slightly change the way he sees Roosevelt. Up until then, he's seen Roosevelt as someone who's, who's shackled to the truth, to democratic propriety, to doing things the right way. But this South American map seems to change that. He imagines he's up against someone who's willing to lie to his people on an enormous and brazen scale. And about 10 days after this speech, Hitler makes an extraordinary admission in private to his foreign minister, Ribbentrop. So up until then, he's been very clear about, about when he wants to go to war with America, which is he doesn't want it to happen until Germany has defeated Russia. He doesn't want to have a war on two fronts. But something has changed. And he says to Ribbentrop, he's changed his mind, and now he wants to go to war with America, even though Russia has not been defeated. And he's just waiting for the right opportunity to present itself. 13 days after that conversation, Japanese planes attack Pearl Harbor. And the day after that, on the 8th of December, 1941, America declares war on Japan. But not Germany, and not Italy either. There's no word from Berlin. The next day, still silence from Berlin. The day after that, nothing from Berlin. So Wednesday, the 10th of December, 1941, Germany and America are at peace. And most people imagine it's going to remain that way for several weeks, months, maybe longer. All of Hitler's top advisors recommend against going to war with America. And there doesn't seem to be the political will in America for Congress to declare war on Germany. But the following day, Hitler surprises the world, as well as his chiefs of staff, by declaring war on America. And it's been described as one of the great mistakes of the Second World War. He had no obligation to do this. It was an unforced error. And it's one which, of course, completely changes the direction and complexion of that conflict. So what was Hitler thinking? And historians have puzzled over this for many, many years. Hitler never wrote down exactly what his thinking was, but he did give a speech a few hours after that declaration of war, which gives us a pretty good idea of what was going on in his mind at that time. And in that speech, he lays into Roosevelt. He describes Roosevelt as, and I quote, a provocateur responsible for intolerable provocations, 
a man who was continually guilty of the most severe provocations toward Germany, and a president who had incited war and made baseless allegations and shameless misrepresentations of the truth. So what was he talking about? What were the baseless allegations and the shameless misrepresentations of the truth? I would argue that he was referring, at least in part, to Roosevelt's speech in the Mayflower Hotel. In other words, this British influence campaign appears to have played a small part in provoking Hitler into this great unforced mistake. And that leaves us with one question. Did he know? And I hope you'll forgive me for this, but I'm going to leave that for the book. <laughs> the, um, I think I'm going to wrap things up there. I, I mean, maybe I'll just finish with one final, final question, which is my, my six-year-old daughter's favorite, favorite question at the moment, which is, so what? <laughs> Why does this all matter? And I think there are two main answers. I mean, the, the first one is it changes our understanding of exactly how America comes into the war against Germany, which is, let's be honest, one of the defining historical moments of the 20th century. But it also gives us a fresh understanding of how influence campaigns work. And we live in an age of influence campaigns. We're also more vulnerable to these than we were back in the 1940s. We need to understand how these work it's rare to get a sense of exactly what happens when you're inside one of these. Writing Agents of Influence gave me a sense of that, a fleeting taste. So it's an important story, but one which I hope is also exciting and uh, gripping to read. Thank you all for listening. At this time, we're going to open it up to questions from the audience. So if you have a question, feel free to raise your hand, and I will come around with the mic. Yes, front row. So regarding the map, um, the notations, I'm curious about the notations yeah. that were written on the map. So, uh, you know, here in America, we, our handwriting is different than Europe's. So is that, should that have been a clue? It, um, well, this was something they studied. So they had examples of German civil servants' handwriting. And you're absolutely right, and it's something I touch upon in the book. But they knew they had to develop a style which was exactly the same as the German civil servants they had evidence of. And it's, I mean, I always find it an amazing thing how in different countries, people do learn handwriting in a different way. I mean, I can always spot, for example, French handwriting myself or British handwriting has a particular character. So you're right. Countries do, as a result of their educational systems, have personal or sort of national styles. And because they had something in Bermuda called a British imperial um, censorship, they had access to a lot of mail. And they were able to, from this mail, get examples of a huge variety of different types of letters. So they use these to try and get that writing exactly right. Because you're correct. I mean, if they hadn't, it would have been a complete giveaway. You mentioned Lindbergh earlier in your presentation as yeah. an isolationist. Could you elaborate on that? What was, what was his logic and who were his supporters? Sure. So Charles Lindbergh, legendary aviator, um, comes back to America. He's been living in Europe. He comes back to America to argue initially 
for America simply to stay out of the war. But the further he gets into this, the more he begins to feel that there are things in America he wants to fix. There are problems which he feels he can address. He's got a platform. He's being listened to by millions of Americans. He's one of the most credible and plausible Americans at that time. And he begins, as the campaign goes on, to talk about other things, like what it means to be American. His allies at that time are, well, he's got a variety of allies, a lot from the Midwest. I mean, the support for America First is interesting. It starts out as a very popular national organization. But towards the latter stages, it changes, and it becomes more extreme. And one of the events that triggers that shift is a speech, a speech that Lindbergh gives on the 11th of September, 1941. It's in Iowa. And this is the speech, the notorious speech, in which he says there is a Jewish cabal trying to bring America into the Second World War. And a lot of people had heard sort of some dog whistles in his speech up until then with, with sort of an anti-Semitic flavor. But that was the first time he really came out with it. And a lot of people then leave America first. A lot of people turn against Lindbergh. He becomes this pariah figure in the weeks that follow. There are streets named after him which suddenly have their names changed. And at the same time, you have a lot of more extreme fascist Americans who begin to join America first. So the answer is, is the support for this group and for him shifts during the course of 1941. Other questions from the audience? Yeah. Yes. I would still have some questions and problems about this South American map. Uh, number one, what was written on the side, the handwriting? Number two, what was the original map? Mm. Number three, how is that a president of a country just based on one map can make such a huge decision which can change the course of history? Just one map. Mm. It's a little strange to me. Well, series of questions. I mean, I, I'll start, maybe I'll leave the last one until, until the last. In terms of the actual, what the handwriting was, I don't know precisely, I don't have the text here. It's, um, it is an exasperated civil servant that Eric was impersonating. In terms of what the map is, is based on, there's no original. So they invented it out of thin air. It is, to be precise, a fake rather than a forgery. So it's a fake, it's designed to look like an original. And, uh, and, and by the way, I should have also said those lines that you see moving around, those are the Lufthansa flight routes. But the last question, how could a president use that to try and justify the country getting suddenly closer to war? I don't know. I don't know. It's, um, he thought it was plausible. There were other people, many other people who saw this and heard about this who also thought it was plausible. It served his purposes. I think that's maybe the best reason. But I suppose the final reason is one which Bill Stevenson himself gave later on in life. And he said, nothing deceives like a document. There's something about having just this thing you can hold in your hands, which makes the thing feel real. And I think that was a part of what was going on there, that it wasn't just something that had been heard or reported, it was an actual document. And by holding it in your hands, you think, this is real, I need to do something about this. The Sovereignty, or rather, I mean, the country could be in danger. That's, um, yeah, a part of the answer. Yes, back yeah. row. Um, 
in your research, did you come across any instances of blowback or any of these stories having an echo or consequences in the, the British press or for the British government? Yeah, there, um, there certainly weren't any examples of the British press picking up on these stories and thinking, this is, this is weird, as in something's going on here. There certainly were instances of people in other British government departments being confused by what was going on because they weren't all aware. So there's quite a, a small need-to-know basis, a um, number of people who are aware of exactly what was going on and what the motivation was. So there's certainly confusion, but I wouldn't say blowback, which had a kind of a negative political impact. Um, I mean, it does, for some reason, it makes me think of uh, one of the British endeavors, which certainly did have blowback in the sense that it failed miserably, which was with a Charles Lindbergh speech, you were asking about him earlier, um, in New York, in Madison, Madison Square Garden. And, um, and it was one of Eric's colleagues who had this idea. And he thought, how about we make a whole series of fake tickets for this event, distribute them in Manhattan for free, and because Lindbergh is so popular, there'll be two people fighting over every seat, and therefore there'll be complete chaos in the arena, and Lindbergh won't be able to speak. And the problem is that Lindbergh then gave this anti-Semitic speech shortly beforehand. So by the time he gave this speech in New York, hardly anyone wanted to hear him speak. So instead, all of the people with fake tickets turned up and found a half-empty stadium and just took some of the empty seats. So the British, at great expense, had actually given Lindbergh a full house, <laughs> which uh, yeah, is, is one example of when it goes wrong. Any other questions? Yeah. What would you say the impact of how do you reveal here was on the relationship of trust or lack thereof between the United States and the UK, either historically at the time or now? It's a good question. Roosevelt was certainly aware of the fact that there was an MI6 station in America. He was certainly aware that they were up to various things. There's a fascinating account of uh, something called Adolf Burley going in to see Roosevelt in the Oval Office and saying, I have evidence. I have evidence that there are, that the Brits are up to stuff. And, uh, and Roosevelt essentially, at that point, turned a blind eye. In other words, it suited his strategic interests. It was in his political interests to, to do nothing. What's interesting is that the moment America comes into the war, it changes. And so there's a new attitude towards these British shenanigans, and a lot of them are, are shut down. So uh, Stevenson has his wings clipped. But I think at the time, for Roosevelt, there was actually there was an advantage, and he was prepared to use it. We have time for maybe one more question. Yes, in the back. After researching this book, when you read news, what goes through your mind? <laughs> so, good question. Um, a lot more goes through my mind, and I hope more goes through everyone's minds after they either hear this talk or read this book. And, um, and it's very simple. It's the same thing I remember learning when I began to study history. Always question your sources. And it's the same thing for every journalist. And I'm glad it's reinforced that. I think whenever you read a story, whenever you read of a poll, whenever you hear of a pressure group, making a statement, it's always important to think, where are they coming from? Who is funding that? And is it reliable? Can we give one more round of applause for Henry? Thank you.
You have been listening to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore Author Reading Podcast. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button to keep up to date on all our newest author talks. After every event, there are limited quantities of signed copies of the featured books. Don't forget to grab your copy today. If you would like more information on Midtown Scholar Bookstore, please visit midtownscholar.com. The Midtown Scholar Bookstore Author Reading Podcast is a free podcast and does not own the rights to any of the readings.